You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn J-Town. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. Super. Let's stand together if you're able in honor of reading God's Word. We're in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, We'll be starting in verse 11, reading down to verse 31. Uh, Our focus today is just going to be verses 11 through 25, but just kind of want to read the whole context of what's going on here. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. And Jesus answered, you say so. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he didn't answer. And then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge, so the governor was quite amazed. So at the festival, the governor's custom was to release the crowd a prisoner they wanted. And at that time, they had a notorious sinner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was because of envy that, he had, that they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife went and sent word to him, said this, have nothing to do with this righteous man, for today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. The chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to execute Jesus. The governor asked him, which of the two do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, they answered. And Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? They also answered, crucify him. And then he said, why? What has he done? What what wrong has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that it was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting starting to, instead, he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, handed him over to be crucified. And then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the governor's residence and gathered the whole company around him. They stripped him and dressed him in scarlet robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head and placed a staff in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they sped on him and took the staff and kept hitting him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his clothes, his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Father, once again, we we always come to you every Sunday just asking for your help, insight, eyes to see what's going on here, and a posture of openness to hear even hard words from you this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So as most of you know, uh, Kathy and I have been married for 25 years, be 26 years in June. Uh, Our 25-year celebration uh, was just kind of weird because of COVID, so we haven't really got a chance to really celebrate 25 years. We're trying to find ways to celebrate 25 in 26. So I don't know how you do that, but we're, we're trying to figure that out. Um, and, I, and I truly 
well, you know, I'm not saying this in any cliche way because people have said this before and they're like, what, what do you mean? But I truly mean this, man. I, I, I love Kathy more today than I did on that first day when I said I do. I mean, it's, um, yeah, deeply, deeply love her and so, so thankful uh, for her in my life. Now, granted, just like any marriage, it hasn't been perfect, hasn't been, you know, you know, wonderful and amazing all the time. You know, there's, there's been difficulty, there's been hardship, there's been struggles, uh, there's been hurt, there's been pain, there's been sin that we've done against one another. Um, as most of you know, we, uh, we spent a couple years in counseling, just having to get through a wall that we both felt like we reached. Uh, probably shared this story with you before, but it's always good to kind of hear it again. I remember the first day when we uh, were sitting in the car right outside the place where we were going to go see, um, his name is Jim Cofield, good friend of ours now. Thank God for him in my life. We were sitting in the car, getting ready to go inside and meet with him. And both of us looked at each other, like, what in the world are we going to talk about? Like, things are great. You know, things are awesome. And we're doing wonderful. What are we going to talk about in there? Why are we doing this? I mean, it's almost like we're like trying to talk ourselves out of it. Like, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, we're, we're going here for you, honey. I mean, I don't know what's going on with me, but I'm like killing it as a husband. Now, I don't know. We'll find out. But um, that's a joke. Thank you for laughing. Um, <laughs> But man, it, it just took us minutes, and we're in there weeping and um, just seeing things in both of our lives. One of the things I learned uh, in those two years and still um, learned a lot and still working on the things I'm learning, it's what I've learned about counseling. You kind of get in it for a little while, and then it's like, ah, we need to take a break because I need to work on all this. <laughs> it's like, you've given me a list, and I need some time. And um, I think one of the things that I notice in this, this, this whole process is that I have a tendency to overown my sin, my wrong. Um, when I've done something to hurt someone, I have a tendency to overown it with others. Like I can, you know, sit down with someone and they can kind of say, hey, you did this, you did this, this is how you hurt me, this is what you did here. And and like just the way God's wired me and some of my own sin that I'm struggling with because I am a, a people pleaser. I want people to like me. You know, I have a tendency to kind of own it and say, oh, like I'll even like, oh, yeah, I see that. I did this. You're right. Oh, man, dude, I'm so sorry. And blah, blah, blah. So I have a tendency to overown with others in a very unhealthy way. And the craziness, this is how messed up I am. I have a tendency to underown when it comes to Kathy, which is just nuts. The, the one person that I could say on this earth that I want to like be impressed with me, right? Just say it like, like I want her validation. I want her affirmation. I want her to say, man, you are, you are killing it as a husband. And so when she in a gracious way comes to me to show me an area that I need to grow in, that I've sinned against her or I've hurt her, it's crazy. Like immediately defenses. And I have a tendency, man, to, to go back at her and say, well, what about this? What about that? Hey, I'm doing this. Did you not notice that? Did you see this? What did I do last week? Hey, you know, all this under-owning when it comes to my relationship with Kathy. I mean, I think it's in all of us. I don't think it takes hard argument here to convince us of this. I think it's deep within the human psyche that we have an instinctive response to defend ourselves when someone comes and confronts us about something. It's just in us. It's, it's there. 
And I'm not saying that there's not a place for that, right? I'm not saying you should never try to defend yourself. And I'm trying to grow and learning how I don't overown with others, right? I'm trying to step into that and grow there. There's a real unhealth there. And at the same time, I think we need to recognize that we got something from our parents, Adam and Eve. And that is this, is we quickly defend and blame other people. We have difficulty owning our own stuff, our own sin, our own ways that we hurt others. And I put before you, that's what makes this passage of scripture that we just got done reading really hard for us, especially for us that's been in church for a really long time. Because what I put before you is that what Matthew is trying to help us see here, all right, and this isn't, you know, this is what's hard about today. I know a lot of people are coming back for the first time in a long time, and I know you've seen me somewhat online, but man, it's just like, this is kind of a hard message that I'm landing on you, but I want you to hear this because I do believe this is what Matthew's trying to get across. He's not wanting us to to read this story as if all Matthew is doing is just kind of narrating the events so that we'll be informed about the trial of Jesus and how bogus it was. No, what Matthew's wanting us to do in the narration of this, these events is for us to see ourselves in this story. That every single one of us, including me, is a participant, a willing participant in the killing of Jesus. That all of us, and this is hard to hear, are murderers. And I don't know about you, but even as I say that, I feel it, right? No, I'm not. I wasn't there. If I was there, I never would have said that, right? You just, you feel it in you. And what Matthew's trying to do here, he's trying to help us see. And it's almost like it's just, Shouting off the pages, there is only one person who is innocent, and it is not us. So let me show you. Let me kind of walk through this passage real quick, and just, just bear with me. And know, man, calm the inner lawyer a little bit, trying to receive what Matthew's trying to help us see in this passage. Starting off here, verse 11, we, we see that, that Jesus is standing before the governor, and we know the governor here is Pilate, and and the, the only charge that uh, the religious leaders feel like could stick with Jesus is this idea that he's saying he's the king of the Jews, because this feels like a, a, a political threat, you know? And so, so that's kind of the charge they're bringing to the government, because they can't kill him. They have no jurisdiction or no legal authority to put someone to death. But, but man, if he can get convicted of this, then, then Pilate can do this. So you know, he stands before the governor and the governor asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus replies to them and says, yes, or replies to him. Yes, you know, it is as you say so. And it's not a snarky remark. It's not being disrespectful. Jesus, in essence, is saying, yes, it is true what you're saying, Pilate, but what you think this whole kingship's about is way different than what I think it is. But it is true. And he goes on, verse 13, then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying or are witnessing against you and bringing these accusations to you. But he didn't answer him on even one charge so that the governor was quite amazed with him. And so all throughout this passage, we see this individual pilot kind of 
sort of conflicted here. Like he can see through what these religious leaders are doing. He sees them as, as jerks, you know. He sees right through this. And in and, and essence, he's, he's just kind of amazed. He's intrigued with him. We don't know exactly what it is, and, but there's something about his presence and how he's not defending himself that intrigues Pilate here. And, and in essence, he just wants to figure out a way to kind of let him go, you know. But at the same time, and here's what the other layer of this is, he's kind of in sort of, you know, uh, on thin ice with Rome. You know, he just hasn't done a good job governing here. And there's some things, boneheaded decisions that he's made that's just caused some real problems for him. And so if he, if he kind of mishandles this, if this kind of gets out of control, there's a, a riot that goes on in Jerusalem, it's not going to go well for Pilate, all right? And so he realizes this is kind of a delicate thing that he's got to handle wisely, so to speak. And so uh, there was a custom in this time to where they would release a prisoner and, and he's thinking like, all right, I'll bring a, another prisoner out here and this is hopefully we'll, the crowd will choose Jesus, the Christ, and I won't have to deal with this issue and just, you know, scurry on. And so that's what we see happening here in verses 15 through 16, where we see Matthew saying this in verse 16, at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas and that word notorious kind of carries this idea of a well-known prisoner, someone that's known throughout the region here. And, and so the question you're going, well, what is he known for? What, what is he kind of like, you know, somewhat famous for? Well, we don't know from Matthew because Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what it is. But if you go to another writer of a gospel, gospel of Mark, Mark 15, 7, we see this. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. And so what Barabbas was is this kind of freedom fighter. He hated Rome. He saw them as their enemies and, and he got a band of followers and they rised up against them. And we don't know who he murdered, but either mur murdered a Roman soldier or maybe murdered a Jew that was in line with Rome a little too much. Whatever it is, he's been found guilty of murder and the execution that he's awaiting is crucifixion. And most scholars believe that the other two thieves that were crucified with Jesus were a part of this whole little rebellion. They were the ones that were teamed up with Barabbas. And so you got this guilty murderer that has been convicted. So in Pilate's mind, no brainer, the crowd will choose Jesus the Christ, who's, you know, hasn't really caused much of a problem. He's the very polar opposite of Barabbas. And while this is going on, it gets even more bizarre because in verse 19, we hear this. So while Pilate was sitting on the judge's bench, his wife sent word to him and says this, have nothing to do with that righteous or another translation here that I think better captures what's going on in this passage is innocent. That's what Matthew's trying to hammer home. There's only one who is innocent. Do, do not have anything to do with this innocent man. For today, I have suffered terribly and dreamed because of him. So there's two other times in the gospel of Matthew where Matthew talks about dreams. So the first one is Joseph. So an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and warns him not to go and divorce Mary. The second one still sort of in the Christmas story is when an angel comes to the wise men in a dream and warns them, don't go back the same way, go back a different way. The reason why I mention that is this, is that when, when Matthew brings up this idea and or not this idea, tells us about Pilate's wife having a dream, it's for us to know that this is God speaking through Pilate's wife here. 
That's what needs to be understood. This is kind of like God's intervention. And he's not coming to save Jesus from the cross because if that was what's going on, that's demonic. That would not be God coming in and giving a message here. That's not what's happening here. This this dream that this wife is having is, is God is proclaiming through Pilate's wife's mouth that Jesus is an innocent man. Very important for us to see that. That's what's going on here. He, he intervenes here, and this is God declaring and proclaiming that Jesus is an innocent man. Goes on, pick it up in verse 21. So he hears this, and then the governor asks him, got the two, two Barabbas and Jesus, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And the crowd answered, Barabbas. And, you know, I'm, I'm speculating here a little bit. I'm sure Pilate's going, oh, gosh, seriously? He goes on, verse 22. Pilate asked them, what should I do with, just, with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all yelled again, crucify him. And then verse 23, then he said, Why? Why? What has he done wrong? There it is again. Even Pilate is recognizing the innocence of Jesus. Why? What what has he done wrong? But they kept on shouting all the more, crucify, crucify, crucify. And then in verse 24, we see Pilate do something that's sort of strange, maybe. And then when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting instead, He took some water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. So Pilate, to sort of appease his own accusing conscience, gets some water and he washes his hands in some symbolic way, trying to show that he has nothing to do with the killing of this innocent man And we all are saying, no, right? We're this side of of the story. We can look in this and say, no, you you can wash your hands all you want to, Pilate. If that kind of helps you sleep at night, so be it. But you are not innocent here. You are complicit to the killing of an innocent man. In fact, what Matthew's trying to hammer home over and over as we've seen here since the beginning of the chapter is that there's only one who is innocent in this entire scene. We see it at the beginning with Judas. And what did he say? What came out of his mouth? I have betrayed what? An innocent man. We see it again over and over with Pilate. He's going, like, what has he done wrong? What crime is it? We see it with his wife's dream where God comes in a dream and declares that he's an innocent man. And then we see Pilate again trying to wash his hands because he recognizes there's nothing, this guy's done wrong. And so I'm going to be the one that's innocent. And the, the, the reality that, that Matthew is trying to press home to us is that there is no one that's innocent other than Jesus. He's the only one. And so when we, when we see this from Matthew, it prompts me to ask three questions. The first one is this. Why doesn't Jesus defend himself? If Jesus is innocent, if he's the innocent one, he didn't do anything that these people are saying he did, then why? Why doesn't he speak up? I mean, it bothers me that he didn't. If I'm reading the text honestly, it kind of bothers me. I don't want you just to say something. 
Like, get back at them. You've got some ninja moves. Use one of those ninja moves. Not like physically. I'm saying like, goodness gracious, if there's anyone that can stink on their feet, we saw it all throughout the gospel when he would kind of put the Pharisees and religious leaders in their place by coming back with a question like, do it now. Why? Why does Jesus not defend himself? I'm not a judge, obviously. And if there was an actual judge here, they would probably say this. Whenever someone remains silent in the face of accusations and they make no defense, the reason why they're doing that is because they're conceding to guilt. And you're probably going, well, hold on. Jesus wasn't guilty of anything that they accused him of. So why doesn't he speak up? Why does he remain silent? Here is why. Because the innocent one who is Jesus is willingly taking on their guilt so that the guilty ones can be declared innocent. That's why. Jesus, the innocent one, is willingly taking on their guilt so that the guilty ones can be declared righteous and innocent in Christ. This is what the New Testament writers are getting after, as we see in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, or you can say the innocent for the guilty. Why? That he might bring us to God. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So why didn't Jesus defend himself? Because he's taken on all our guilt. So that we, the guilty ones, can be declared innocent in Christ. The second question then, who is guilty? Who's guilty of killing Jesus here? So if, it's, if he's the only innocent one, then who's guilty of murdering Jesus? Is it the Jewish leaders who sought to kill him from early in the gospel, right? Maybe about year two of his ministry, they're, they're dead set to kill Jesus. Is it the disciples who deserted him and Peter denied him? Are they guilty of killing Jesus? Is it Judas who, who kind of put all this into motion with the betrayal of Jesus? Is he the one that's guilty of killing Jesus? Is it Pilate who cowardly stepped back and allowed the pressures of the crowd to form what he should or should not do? Is he the one that's guilty of killing Jesus? Is it the crowd who, who mocked Jesus, who, who cried out, crucify him, crucify him? Are they the ones that are guilty of killing Jesus? Or is it the soldiers who put a crown of thorns on him, spat on him, took a staff and struck him in the head. And they're the actual ones that, that drove the spikes into his hands and his feet. Was it the soldiers who are guilty of killing Jesus? And what Matthew is trying to put before us is that all of them did it. Every single one of them. The religious leaders, the disciples, Judas, Pilate, the crowd, the soldiers, all of them are guilty. And what what Matthew's trying to help us see is that that includes us. Find which character you relate with because that's what he's trying to do. Jesus is the only innocent one. Every single one of us in this room and every single person that's in this scene is guilty of killing and murdering Jesus. No one else is innocent. He's the only innocent one. Matthew's not wanting us to see ourselves as like these little innocent bystanders that are kind of watching a play unfold, which we have a tendency to do. 
when we read these narratives. No, he's wanting us to identify ourselves with the ones who yelled, crucify him. And I, I don't know, maybe you don't feel this. I find it hard to own this sometimes. I know we sing a song around here, like right for, for some reason right now, I cannot remember the title of the song. Um, if it, well, I'm not going to try to have it come to me because I can't remember right now, but we sing this phrase over and over with a song that we sing here recent, a lot. It's my sin, it's my sin that held him there. You know what I'm talking about? You guys know what I'm talking about, that song? And we sing that all the time. And my concern is that a lot of us give this kind of mental confession to this or we don't even think about what we're saying. And even though we're declaring it with our mouth, I wonder if we really confessionally believe that. That your lies killed Jesus. Your dishonesty killed Jesus. Your gossiping killed Jesus. You're, you're looking lustfully at the opposite sex. Kill Jesus. Your anger flying off the handle, no patience. Kill Jesus. And honestly, sometimes it's really hard to own that. But if we don't own this, if we don't, then man, what we've been talking about over the last few weeks and what we'll talk about next, next Sunday just doesn't make sense. I think this is part of what Jesus was trying to get across when he was talking to some Pharisees in John chapter 9. Look what he says here. It's such a confusing little few verses, but look what he says. Jesus said, I I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and those who do see will, will become blind. Now that's helpful, <laughs> right? And then just like we're perplexed, the Pharisees were too because they said in verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and asked him, we, we aren't blind too, are we? And then look how Jesus responds to them in verse 41. If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Translation, if you don't own your own sin, if you don't own where the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of your wrong, then your sin still remains. Because the only hope for you is to confess and own so that you can find forgiveness in the innocent one and what he has done for us on the cross through the resurrection. Jesus, that's the only way. Which leads me to the last question here then. Where do we really find hope, God? How do we find this real hope? And we see it in verse 25. Ironically enough, look what the people say. So, you know, Pilate says, I'm washing my hands, I'm, I'm innocent. And then look what the people say. 
His blood be on us and our own children. I mean, the irony is thick here. Yes, by saying this, they did curse themselves and they did abandon their covenant with God. But there's another way for Jesus' blood to be on them, isn't there? There's another way for Jesus' blood to cover them, to cover their own sinful rebellion, even the murdering of an innocent man. And this is what the writers are getting at it. Paul in Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have redemption. In Jesus we have redemption. Well, how? How's that happen, Lyle? Through what? His blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18, For you know that you are redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but how, Lyle? How? But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished spotless lamb. Peter says it again in chapter two, where he says this, he committed no sin talking about Jesus. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds and wounds produce blood. By his wounds, you have been healed. Yes, in some ways, the crowd had no idea what they were saying, but, but in this rich, thick, ironic verse, is that's your only hope. It's, it's through the blood of Jesus covering you, covering your sin that we can be forgiven, even as crazy as this sounds, killing Jesus. Like Jesus, God, that, that Pilate wasn't his enemy. This crowd wasn't his enemy. The soldiers weren't his enemy. The disciples weren't his enemy. Judas wasn't his enemy. Satan, sin, and death was his enemy. And he is going to the cross to die for all these people that said, crucify him and say, hey, I want the blood of Jesus on me. Well, that's your only hope whenever the blood of Jesus comes upon you because that's the only way that we can be forgiven of any sin and all of our sins that put him on the cross. Isn't that what the old hymn writer was getting after when he says, guilty, vile, and helpless we. I know that's not how we talk, right? But he's writing a song, amen? But that's us. We're guilty, vile, and helpless we. But who is Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, was he? Full atonement. Can it be? Can I really be forgiven? That's what he's asking. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude. That's what Jesus did for you and he did for me. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon. How, Lyle? How did he do it? Say it out loud. With his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So what do we do with this? First of all, if you're not a Christian here, my encouragement for you is to, is to run to Christ. Stop trying to atone for your own sins by showing up on Sundays or by making all these promises you're not going to do this or this or this or, or say, I'm going to clean up my life. And then, no, just run to Jesus. He's done all the work. That's why it's such good news that we often forget. He did it all for you. Quit trying to atone for your own wrongdoing and your own sin that you feel conviction over. Own it. As one writer says, defending your innocent doesn't save you. Only 
confessing guilt does. Confess your guilt and run to the merciful arms of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian here, then here's my encouragement for you. A couple of little takeaways. The first one is this. May this um, continually work in our lives to where we, we take sin seriously. Man, we are a, a church that's all about the grace of God. I think you guys have heard me preach on this for 10 years. Man, we are, we are always celebrating the one-way love of God, man, that he loves us, his posture toward us, his love, and, and man, he is so for us. But sometimes, unfortunately, because we're all broken human beings that are still in this process of growth, it can make us just kind of have a flippant idea about sin where just sin is like, eh, it's not a big deal. Garbage, guys. No matter how small or big your sin was, it killed Jesus. And if it should do anything in our own lives as followers of Jesus Christ, is that we have a desire for holiness. Holiness is not some kind of archaic, old, legalistic thing that was happening years ago and we've arrived or evolved and now we know. Holiness is what we pursue as Christ followers because we take seriously that my sin, my sin killed Jesus. It's just like when your wife or a good friend of yours comes and says, man, that hurt me when you said that. If you really love this person, that's going to bother you. Amen? It's going to bother you. And my concern, I'll just own it for me. My concern is I take sin too lightly because I've, I've got a, a pretty, um, I need a growing, fuller understanding of the grace of God. Because when I have a fuller understanding of the grace of God, then I don't take sin lightly. So Christian fight. As Paul said, don't make provisions for the flesh. Fight. Confess. Not just to yourself. You see it in James. You see it in 1 John. There is something that happens when you confess with others your sin. It doesn't have to be with everyone, right? That's not, that's not wise. That's, that's, that's kind of stupid, honestly. But you got to find somebody Get this in the light. And live boldly as one who is forgiven. My sin did this to Jesus, and Jesus did this for my sin. So may we as Christ followers pursue after holiness, take sin seriously, because it is what killed Jesus. Not their sin, my sin. And then lastly, and this is how I'll close, I think my prayer, as I've looked at this passage and, and processed and prayed through it, is I'm asking the Holy Spirit to make this more real in my life. I mean, if you grew up in church, this time of year, you can just kind of feel numb. Oh, yeah, yeah, he died for my sins, blah, blah, blah. Like, and I, I'm just going, I don't want that. Like, I know all the answers. I know all the truths. I know what, what to say. I, I don't just want it here. 
And I do believe that, that part of the Spirit's work in us is to take the truths about Jesus, that I've been fully pardoned, that he's taken on all my guilt, all my sin, past, present, and future. I know that. And the Holy Spirit's work in my life is to take that truth and make it real in me, alive in me, to where there's a, a deep joy, where there's a, a deep gratitude, to where when we just get ready to sing here in just a few minutes, we, we praise the name of Jesus that it's just not coming from my head. It's coming from here. Now, we won't get this perfect. I'm not after perfection here. I'm just after asking the Holy Spirit to take something I've known for years and continue to make it real in my life. And may God do that for all of us in this room. Let's pray. May we just take a few minutes here and just be still and quiet before the Lord and allow His Spirit to speak to us. So in the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this and he broke it. And he told his friends, his followers there, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is being shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so each time we gather together and we eat of this bread and we drink of this cup, we're announcing the death of Christ together. So this is how we are doing communion uh, now. Uh, we're, we're, we're asking you, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, here in just a few minutes to, to stand up. And we've got five different stations here throughout the room. Uh, we're, in, we're encouraging you to kind of go uh, in, in groups of like two or three, or if you've got your whole family or a friend group or whatever, to gather around the table and allow the individual to say the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you. We're just trying to bring back the family aspect of this meal and that it's just not, like I said last week, just about Jesus and me, but it's Jesus, me, and, and all of us. So we're trying to do that in a small way here. Then after you hear that, you can take the communion cup back to your seat and take it whenever you're ready to take it. But if you're not a follower of Christ, you're not a Christian, then man, we're just, we're asking you not to take this meal, but that you would receive Jesus, that you put your trust in him, that you would run to Christ. I would love to talk to you more about that. Anybody at these stations, that you see, would love to talk to you more about what that means. So church, whenever you're ready, no rush here, just encourage you to go to one of these stations and take communion. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.